The views and opinions expressed by the following program are those of the host, guest, and callers, and are not necessarily those of this station or the Webster Rockville Ministries, its management, or other host or underwriting sponsors. Programs presented on KWRHLP are for educational and entertainment purposes only. Welcome back to In Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton. We are moving from our conversation previously to now we're going to be talking about something that's going on this weekend, and it's an ongoing project that actually takes place uh, at a variety of times of year. It's the Chamber Projects St. Louis, and in studio we have Dana Hodel, a long O, and David Werfelman. And David is a composer. Dana is the executive director. And I'm going to read their bios, and then we're going to have a big Q&A here. So I'm going to start with Dana first. She's a clarinet player, which obviously Woo-hoo! she's wonderful because Ellie plays clarinet too. So Wait, There's three clarinet players in the room? Three clarinet players, and we could do a trio. We could have a band. There you go. We could <laughs> do some chamber music what do you here. Play? What do you play, Chris? He plays the radio. A little piano. Okay, there you go. There we go. So Dana can be heard performing in both her home state of Missouri and Illinois. She's currently the principal clarinet with the Illinois Symphony Orchestra, performs with the Winter Opera St. Louis. She's a former member of the Equinox Chamber Players and the Cedar Rapids Symphony. She performs with the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra, Opera Theater of St. Louis, right here in Webster Groves. As a regular substitute musician, has a Bachelor's of Music from the University of Illinois, Go Illini at Champaign-Urbana, and a Master of Music from Manhattan School of Music. She teaches at the Community Music School, at Webster University's Festival Director for the Gersher Music Festival, as well as serving as Executive Director for the Chamber Project. And David Werfelman is an award-winning composer of instrumental vocal and electronic music, whose works are widely performed and recorded by ensembles and soloists throughout the United States. His orchestral music has been performed by the Milwaukee Symphony Orchestra, as well as major orchestras (coughs) of the University of Southern California Thornton School of Music, the Indiana University Jacobs School of Music, and the Lawrence University Conservatory of Music. He is heard frequently at concerts and festivals and recitals around the United States. He's received commissions from many, many places, including music teachers associations, instrumentalists. He's professionally recorded by a variety of groups, and he's originally from Portland, Oregon, received his degrees from USC, Indiana University, and Lawrence University. He's a percussionist, a committed educator, and has held teaching positions at Lawrence University, USC, and is currently at Webster University, where he's the assistant professor of music and director of the BA program in music. Welcome. So when do these Thank people you. have time to sleep? All right. <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> that is a good question. <laughs> yeah. My goodness. I mean, you all are some busy, busy people. We have both probably have our hands in a lot of projects. Yeah, and I think mm-hmm. that the uh, it, it comes in waves, too. There's times where you're right, we're just not sleeping at all. And, um, you know, and then the piece is written. And then I hand it over to Dana. And then I <laughs> stop sleeping. She doesn't get to sleep for a while. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. So tell yeah. us about Chamber Project St. Louis. What are the origins? I know this is your 12th season. This is our 12th season. Yes. So we're a chamber music group and um, a mixed ensemble chamber music group. And what that means is we perform concerts where there's anywhere from maybe two to seven, maybe 10 people on stage at a time, but averaging four to six musicians per piece of music. Maybe three is pretty common too. Um, and each concert has a different um group of musicians so sometimes it's all strings sometimes it's winds and piano or there's harp or percussion or vocalists you know so every concert has a different mix of musicians and so this is our 12th season and um, something that's really important to us in chamber project is to really be a part of and to 
grow a local music scene. And so we've really focused a lot on the last few years. Um, I think this is our fourth or fifth year of our commissioning project. So we've been commissioning exclusively local composers. Um, this year we have three composers that we've commissioned to write new pieces of music for us. And um, David's is the first and it's fantastic. So we're really excited um, to have his piece. We'll be premiering it Saturday night. And it's Saturday night at in the venue because your venues change, correct? Yeah, every every concert's in a different venue too. So, um, which is we actually, you know, uh, curate the programs to fit the venues, and vice versa. That's interesting. Yeah, and we um, it's fun because our audience gets to like explore the city, right? You get to try different things, and there's some venues we go year after year after year. Everybody loves, and then every year we try to you know try a couple new places and um, just get out and see some different parts of the city, different rooms. It's a lot of fun. And this is going to be at the is it five oh nine? This is at the five sixty Music Center, um, which is. Um, part of the Washington University campus. It used to be Casa, Casa years right. ago. It was Casa, right? right. Um, so uh, they've uh, renovated that space beautifully. And so it's really become a hub of chamber music in the city. I mean, there's just so much great stuff happening at that place, and we're happy to be a part of it. You know, I'm looking at your October 11th concert, mm-hmm. Resilient. Yes. And, it, you know, it's interesting because right now I'm reading a lot about resilience <laughs> and what re- what resilience really means. And, you know, a lot of times we don't really see it as one of the things that you say here, failing well. Yeah. Because we believe, you know, we are in a culture where we do not give credit to failing. Yeah. You know, there's no, if you, you know, Super Bowl. The only people that were in the Super Bowl were the winners. Right. Okay. The guys who came in second are cream puffs, even though they beat out every other team. <laughs> the fact that they didn't win it at the Super right. Bowl, they, they get trashed. You know, failure is what makes, um, is what made Thomas Jefferson, con- or Thomas Edison continue <laughs> right. That's along right. along the way. That's right. So failure is, is not something to That's right. And Abraham Lincoln. Go home. Especially, you know, right. we look at failure, but in our culture, we don't look at failure as something that we learn from, that we thrive for, right. and that we then go, go forward. So I'm so happy to see oh, that in that you call it recovery, reflection, and failing well. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thanks. Yeah. Well, all of our concerts are themed, so you just picked up on that, and then we... Um, flush out that theme through the stories of the music. So it might be something about the composer or the piece itself tells a story that relates to that theme. And um, also I think resilient for us as musicians, we're failing all of the time, right? That's how you learn. You make all these, as you're learning in your music, you make mistake after mistake after mistake and you practice and practice and practice so that you don't make those mistakes, right? So we're failing and we have to fail well or we would quit. Right. Like we have to be able to learn from that and move forward and get the, you know, the good stuff out of that. What did you learn from that? Right. I mean, that's just our daily practice is literally to fail. So (laughs) we relate to that resilient uh, theme quite a bit in a lot of ways. But that's going to be a really, really fantastic concert. So, David, the theme is window and it's through the looking glass. And as I recall, you're looking at architecture and uh, I'll, I'll let you take off. What was what sure. was motivating you when you wrote this particular piece? Well, I'll tell you. But after this conversation about resilience and failure, I kind of wish it was more on that concert. I mean, that's, <laughs> that seems to be more in line with my approach to composing and working through the process. You know, and it is like Dana said. I mean, it's a just a routine. 
act to fail and to bounce from that and to recover. And then you're right, you learn from those experiences. I think every step of the way is all about that. But I knew that my piece was going to be pro programmed on the window through the Looking Glass concert. And um, and so I was thinking about this while I was writing the piece. How does, how does my piece fit in with that? And one thing that happened to me over the summer, I, I had some time to travel in Europe. And I went to uh, the Versailles Palace mm -hmm. and uh, right outside of Paris. There's this really beautiful room called the Hall of Mirrors. Mm -hmm. And it's gorgeous because you walk in, it's it's a massive banquet hall that Louis XIV, you know, invited all his guests to. But on one side of it is this wall of mirrors. Right down the middle is this large banquet table with massive chandeliers that are hanging from above. And on the right-hand side are these windows that go from floor to ceiling. And it's, it's this amazing effect of this light coming through the room and being refracted through the mm -hmm. through the chandeliers and then against this uh, opposite wall, and this really struck me. I was had been thinking really hard about the piece and working on it at this point, but um, I hadn't really touched on what was my connection to this theme until this moment. I was like, okay, I've got to explore this idea in my music. So. You know, I think uh, to greater or lesser extent, you might be able to hear this through the piece itself. There are moments where I play with this idea of reflection and refraction. And I, I, I know that um, I, I went to a rehearsal of this concert just the other day and was able to listen to Chamber Project perform this portion. So there's this moment in the piece where there's a musical idea that's played it's exactly the same in three different parts hmm. with one change, that they all start one eighth note apart from each other. We so, failed at this one a lot. I'm just going to put that up. <laughs> it into was a lot of failure for a while in rehearsal. Sure. I, and, and, I mean, you know, each one of the parts are, like, pretty simple, yeah, right? Yeah, the individual parts are not hard. It's, yeah. when, it's when you take this idea that is identical and you shift it by just the smallest amount of time for each part. And, uh, and that's where the textural mm -hmm. effect comes in. That's, that's one of the ways in which I was trying to capture this idea of reflection and light through this piece. Um, the effect is actually really nice it's because really nice. Um, you get, this, you get the, the blend of the different instruments and actually different chords kind of stack up in this way. But... Um, um, but but it's it's a simple idea. So it's one simple musical idea that's just passed between the instruments in different ways. So, um, you know, I love this. I, so the piece, by the way, is called On Vitreous Forms. Vitreous is a cool word. Maybe you haven't heard it, um, but it means uh, objects that are glass-like, right? So um, thinking about all of the different kinds of textures and imagery that comes from glass. Um, it could be smooth and reflective. It can be brittle and sharp and hard and um, all the different variations of all of that. So, you know, I think what an audience member will get away from this is that there are very different and distinct kind of textures and moods that are presented in the piece. And it kind of cycles through these and cycles back through them at the, uh, the second half of the piece. Let's, let's listen to a portion of his composition in, in vitreous glass. On vitreous forms. On vitreous forms. So that instrumentation, you have flute, clarinet, violin, cello, 
two pianos and percussion? Um, actually, this is just one piano, no percussion on this. Um, there's, um, I think, some other piece yeah, on the concert with percussion. With percussion. Yeah. Gotcha. But yeah, it's, so it's, it's, it's a quintet, flute, okay. clarinet, violin, cello, and piano. And that was the very beginning. Okay. It's just the like little introduction. But right. you know what? That gave me a feeling immediately. It, be, it made me feel very fairy-like. Oh, yeah. You know, and it's that I was... a little fluttery. Yes, yeah. and that, like, I was in um, the forest with uh, a fairy. Cool. I wasn't the fairy, but the fairy was in the forest yeah. with me, kind yeah. of leading, and I was skipping yeah. very carefree along with... And it, it was. It was very uh, flowing, very uh-huh. reflective. Um, that's how it made me feel immediately. You know, I, it, it's funny that you say that, um, because this happens to me a lot when I write a piece of music where I, I don't tend to think in very specific imagery or narrative uh, formats like that. But audience members often come up to me immediately after the, of the a concert, the premiere, and they tell me exactly what they saw. And I've been told that some of my music is cinematic. Again, I'm not an aspiring film composer, and I'm not thinking along those lines as I write music, but I, I think that's maybe tapping into a shared experience that we have as an audience member, a mm-hmm. listener, a composer, performer, is that we often associate these musical ideas that are very abstract, right? I mean, there's no story here. There's no text to present you with that image, but you capture it anyway by by maybe reaching into the the the, uh, the shared musical experience that we all have. I even saw colors. Oh, really? Yeah, I see a lot of when I, even playing this where I'm having to count really really hard because I have to count really. <laughs> sure. Like, there's a lot of color in this piece a, a, a and in lot. your music, and I think that, I mean, I think we talk about color as musicians in a very technical way but um i think to people who aren't as i mean you're both musicians you play the clarinet right so you know what i mean by color but like that is something people pick up on even if they're not you know it's Mm -hmm. it's green and there's sunlight coming through the trees or you know whatever it is it's very refractive and there's a lot of really bright shiny colors in this Mm -hmm. piece that are really um appealing like it's really beautiful and it sparkles i mean there's like a sparkle thing that happens in this music um but it's also like really we haven't really talked about it but like it's um there's so much going on, but it sounds simple, this piece, mm-hmm. right? Which is awesome. Like, I think right. that's what, like, musicians like that and mm-hmm. the audience likes it, too, because there's a lot to get out of it. Sure. Right? And it made sense to me what you were saying about the the inspiration of it, because, like I said, as I was just listening to those few seconds of it, I was transformed into a forest. There, were, there was a light coming through the, the, the trees, through the leaves, and this fairy, which was very colorful, kind of uh, sparkly purplish, pinkish, bluish, Uh kind of skipping along, and I'm following right along with it, you know, very happy. So what do we take away from that? Okay, now you being my my psychiatrist, (laughs) 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 do I need meds or what? (laughs) No, you need to go to the concert tomorrow night. That's right. What a segue. (laughs) (laughs) David, what what do you... what causes an inspiration then, or like a, a, a motif, or how do you how do you like you, you hear what people say, yeah, and it's not what you're con- you sure. had conceptualized. What had you conceptualized when you were writing this? Yeah, or is that a fair question? It's a very fair question. Um, each piece is a little different. Mm-hmm. There are sometimes. Well, for me, it's rare, but it happens, especially if I'm working with text, where I'll have a title. Mm-hmm. 
or a concept that's kind of given to me by what I'm working with. Uh, that wasn't really the case here, except for the theme I knew, knew I wanted to tie it into. Um, so, so more typically, and as was the case here, is I was searching for musical ideas to, to take and to develop. And the way that that happens for me, it is actually kind of abstract. I guess I just I work with instruments, instrumental music so much that I I uh, I, I, I find some rhetorical meaning in a musical idea. So it doesn't have to be tied to a particular image, but you know, there's like, um, I think the piece starts off with, um, if I, not to get too technical, but triads, just two triads mm-hmm. that are set a third of a third apart. That's the first notes that you hear in, in three of the instruments of the ensemble. Well, that's a really simple and basic idea, just two chords right next to each other. But then that gives me ideas for how the piece is going to proceed as it moves ahead. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I, I, just to kind of tie back into this idea of, of, of failure and how that's really reflected in this piece is my process um, typically is about following these leads, following these different leads of musical ideas and seeing if they take me somewhere. And over the years, I think in the last five or so years, I've gotten a lot more comfortable with you know, if those, if something doesn't work, if it's not working out, or if it's not right for this piece, I set it aside. And I remember as a student composer, you know, years ago, that that would scare me. You know, I had deadlines I needed to get. Had the, to force it. Exactly. I had to force it. I'd make everything work. Well, I think in those um, cases, the work suffered. And and at this point, you know, it's like if, if I go through that process and I weed things out, I do know a lot more about the piece. I know what's not going to be there and what the piece is not about. So I'd say, actually, I have several drafts of the beginning of this piece that never made it into the final version. They may work in pieces in the future, but... Um, but for, for my process, it's really about exploring. I'm just trying to find it. It's like I, I, I'm not a visual artist, but I imagine that it's somewhat similar to sculpting where there's this big block of stone and you don't know exactly what it is, but you have a sense of, of the final product. And it's all about finding that by carving things away. And um, the, the, the form really emerges as I get into the piece. You know, and that's very interesting that you say that because we've talked to many artists on the, on the show and they say something very similar. We've talked to sculptors and we've talked to, you know, just uh, painters. Uh, and many, then they will look at a painting and maybe they've been working on it for several months and it's just, and, and they'll dab on it and they'll put it away because it's just not quite, it hasn't conceptualized for them to a point where I can put my signature on this. Sure. As, uh, you know, Thomas Hart Benton did. And, you know, he would, he would make clay molds. He would take photographs. He would do uh, many different drawings and things like that. And then finally, he would he would do the actual oil, or, or it was the um, eggshell tempera. But the that whole thought process of the arts, it's very similar probably to someone who writes. And, you know, I have this idea in my head or, you know, that's, you know, I'll just put that on the shelf and maybe years later they pull that off and it's ripe for them to develop and to pursue. Yeah, well, actually, this summer I, I picked up a writing book. Um, it's really good, and I think it it applies more broadly than just writing. But it is it's called Bird by Bird, and um, and it, the the author talks. It's basically giving writing lessons. I mean, she she is a writing instructor, um, and and so many of her lessons were applicable to what I'm doing, mm-hmm. and it's and especially the. Um, uh, the kind of getting away from the filter that's kind of constantly on as an artist where, you know, you want your work to be, this is the best work I've ever done. And, and, and I think in some ways that's in a positive way motivating. Um, but in other ways it can really 
hold you down. But I know that artists from all disciplines are dealing with the same kind of thing where they, uh, they know that they want to achieve something, but they, that can also be something that's kind of getting in the way of what they're working on. Interesting. Yeah, Interesting. I think art making is, I always think about art making is, so my husband's an art teacher. Okay. And we talk about art a lot, art making a lot, like the act of creating something, mm-hmm. right? And it's really, to me, it's just a series. It's not just, but it is a series of decisions. And if in your head, you're always doubting, is this the right decision? that that can really hold you back like you have to get into that flow state where you're and in music you're making these decisions exceptionally rapidly Mm. right right like am i loud enough is this the right note am i in the right place like it's really comes at you really really fast whereas when you're painting you can put it on a shelf and think about that decision for months if you want to right or whatever it is but you still have to find that state where you're making decisions and you're trusting your instincts you're also being critical in a way that mm-hmm. improves your work without getting stuck in this is it good enough place of judgment, right? So there's this, you know, they call it a flow state, right? right? And I think, especially in the performing arts, but even composing or writing or painting, like you'll get into this right. space where you're able to make the decision. You don't even know you're making decisions. You're just creating. But and then there are other days where you're like, everything is a decision. And it's the technical you know? portion, and then it's the creative portion, which then frees you in that flow state to, you can't many times get to the, I found personally, you can't get to the flow state if your technical abilities right. have not allowed you to move into Totally. That. You have yeah. to have that broad experience so that you're not you're not co- cognitively thinking about every single step, right? right? And as a musician like like Dana and, and the ensemble, they're not making these decisions on a very always on a very conscious level right. sometimes that's just coming that's emerging right. from the experience we've trained you know 10 years ago practicing we made a series right. of decisions and those have stuck with us right, right? yeah I yeah. will say that um, one of the things that helped me write this piece was knowing the ensemble. And I got a great opportunity to work with Dana um, last year. She was in residence with my composition studio at, at, at Webster University. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we got to exp- I got to see her perform and how she worked. And, um, of course, I've been going to the Chamber Project St. Louis concerts for years. So really knowing the ensemble and what kind of music they wanted, Dana was really clear about what kind of piece she wanted. <laughs> yeah, cool. you know? we knew exactly. We were like, this is, we want an exciting piece to end the program. Yeah. Now she, she told me right away that it was a closer and yeah. she wanted it fast. She showed me some pieces that she listened to of mine on my website. Yeah. And she's like, I like that. Um, you know, yeah. so, so that did clarify a lot right, for right. me because yeah. I knew what type of piece she was after. I knew the time frame of like when they would start rehearsing to when they would perform it. And certainly there's some challenging parts to the piece, yeah. but wouldn't you say, Dana, that it's also like laid out in a way that you could get in and get out in yes. a week or two. You know, oh yeah. Yeah. It's great. And it's a really good challenge. Like I think as difficult as some of those spots were for us rhythmically to figure out, like it's really fun because then you get it right. And the effect is so cool. Like it's absolutely (laughs) worth the work because then the music sounds so good once you get it. So yeah, it's been fantastic. It's a great piece. So So we've got a couple minutes, David, and I know you're only going to be with us this half hour. Uh, Quickly, what I'd love to have you back on the show and talk more about this. This is fascinating to me. I'd love to. Uh, What, Advice can you give a budding composer or someone who, a a student who's like, I'd really like to do that. I have an interest in that. Okay. So, well, the first thing, and I have students who are budding composers. So I I, I give this advice a lot. The most important thing is to continue to write and to not be 
you know, no, wait for the perfect opportunity to come to you. Write your music and find those opportunities. The second thing I'd like to say, and I don't want to sound like a broken record, but really tying it back to this idea of fail, failure and failing well. You're not writing your magnum opus when you're 19, 20 years old or, right. or whenever you're starting, you know? I think of every single piece as a stepping stone to my next piece. And I think that I think that's served me very well in my career. I think young composers should think about the same thing, that this piece is going to make sure that their next piece is even better. And they can continue to go in that sense. That's great advice. And Dana, where can we hear this composition tomorrow? So it's tomorrow night at 7.30 at the 560 Music Center, which is on Delmar across from City Hall. Um, you can visit our website at chamberproject.com stl.org and tickets and all that stuff is available there okay folks we've got a wonderful series going on and you can check them out at the website the chamber project st louis and david we're grateful that you came in today it's been great having you on the show and we'll we'll have you back to talk about this in more detail thanks so much it's been a pleasure you're listening to arnold stricker and ali wharton of in tune on kwrhlp 92.9 fm your community radio station in webster groves missouri Welcome back to In Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton. That's me. <laughs> Had to catch. Who's he talking about? Oh, me. me. Oh, I'm looking, at, I'm looking at you right now. We have Dana Hodel in with the studio that's today. Her. That's her. That's Dana. She's a... That's right. For those that are on Facebook, they won't get confused. Ellie. Arnold. Dana. So Chris. Dana... Crit, yes. You can't see him. I'm the invisible guy in the <laughs> He's just a voice that comes out of nowhere. He's got a head of hair, though. I need a reverb on my voice. I think it's God <laughs> yeah, talking. Exactly. <laughs> Put it in one of those tunnels. Dana, tell us about the origin of uh, Chamber Project St. Louis, because I think when people think of chamber music, they think of, you know, France and Germany and falling they, asleep in the middle of the concert. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know. That the, the, the king has, you know, has got the little court going on. You've got a little small group, you know, and then they've got their tights and their wigs on. And, you know, that, that's the, I'm going to say, stereotype chamber music kind of visual that may, some people may be thinking about. But I loved how you are really kind of breaking that down and Absolutely. just destroying it, <laughs> essentially. And, and I love this, that you wanted to share music that we love with each other in our community. And how can we not be boring and stuffy, and how can we smash through all those quote-unquote classical music stereotypes? I love that. Yeah, Thanks. because, yeah. you know, think about it. We have to dress a certain way. If we don't have our chamber music clothes. Are you, are, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of tradition. I mean, the thing about any tradition, of course, like everything is baseball traditions. I mean, there's all traditions, right? And every tradition has some positive things, I think, and maybe some things that need to be rethunk. And, um, you know, especially in classical music, we sometimes get a little, this is the way it's always been, right? right? And um, there are parts of that that are valuable of those traditions, but some of them, they just don't fit, especially with chamber music, right? right? Like chamber music is something 
So some of the origins of chamber music do, do go all the way back to 18th century Europe and, a, you know, this very sort of court royalty mm-hmm. thing. But then in the 19th century, it really was something that went more into the salon, which would have been a group of friends, many of whom would have been composers or poets or artists or whatever, and they would have gathered and shared their most current work with each other. Right. So there were there were like these sort of informal, not really necessarily public events was chamber music. And that idea of just sharing music with your friends and making it a really a community based thing, like a place to build community. Mm-hmm. Right. Like this is a shared ground. Doesn't matter whatever else is happening with you. You know, you can come to this concert, you can share this music, you can talk about it made me think of fairies in the woods or whatever, you know, and then you have a a connection with someone else in your community and um, through that music and through our themes and our storytelling, we give our audience even more to talk about and think about and um, have a drink during the concert. And so we kind of just relax a lot of those um, stereotypes. stereotypes. I think a lot, you know, we talk from the stage a lot. There's rarely a backstage. So we like walk, off the stage into the audience you know we play in bars and tap rooms and um art galleries and you know just different kind of places so it's it's, it's like you're bringing the art form to the people definitely that's the the thing that i think that theater and chamber music has always had as its challenge is how to really bring it to the the average joe guy joe girl right right and that's really like one of the things we talk about all the time, especially when we first got started 12 years ago is like, we love this music. We're just normal people. We shop at Schnucks and Mm -hmm. Target and you know, Mm -hmm. we're, we're just like everybody else. And how can we let people in on this? Cause this is good stuff. You know, we like it. You don't have to know that much about it to let, to enjoy it. Right. That's right. It's like people like watching the running of the bulls, but that doesn't mean that they're going to run. Right. Exactly. Right. And there's, there's, so much great music out there and so many different kinds of music. And um, how can we be as welcoming as possible to people who know nothing about music or might be intimidated by the big concert hall where there are to this day and for some good reasons, actually, once you get to know it, like these traditions, you know, it's like going to a faith service of a faith that you've never gone to, right? Like if you're Christian going to a Jewish service or Mm -hmm, vice versa, mm -hmm. I I was in a Hindu temple temple a couple weeks ago Mm -hmm. and I had no idea what was going on. Right. But it was so interesting just to see, and you know, once you're initiated into the rituals, then you're like, Oh, I, I get it. Right. But it can be really intimidating. And so we've dropped a lot of it in, um, what we do, the way we present concerts. You know, and I know some things the symphony worries about, and even opera theater worries about, and other musical groups like that. How do we keep this going to the next generation? How do we draw young people in so they still like to come down to the symphony hall or go to see the opera? And I think you're kind of bridging some of those things, yeah. maybe even for them in some ways yeah. where, uh, you know, another one, Alarm Will Sound, we we've know mm-hmm. about that group and yeah. they've been in a lot. But how have you purposefully, what things have you purposefully done to kind of bring another generation in? Well, I think two, two or three things. I think one... Um, which I'd like to talk more about, which is the programming, but sort of the more upfront stuff is, I think the venues, uh, you know, we're always trying to find venues uh, that where people already are, the mm-hmm. Schlafly Tap Room, mm-hmm. like 
people want to go there already, right? right? So let's go play some music there. Um, as we've grown, a lot of those spaces we've actually physically grown out of because our audience is getting a little too big. So like we played it um, four hands for mm-hmm. a while and we played at, um, we've played at the Vino Gallery, you mm-hmm. know, but, but we need more than 40 seats. So we've had to, to move into some bigger spaces, but um, just that idea of taking the music where people already are, they want to go. So mm-hmm. we're going to do art galleries and art mm-hmm. museum and, um, and by shifting it around, I think it also makes it more inviting that you're not going to this oh, like, yeah. one spot, you know? So right. the venue selection, we always try to make it possible to have a drink or two with the concert, you know, and just to meet people. We just, the intermissions are as long as it takes for people to get their second drink, right? Like we're not really like ding, 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 get yeah. in your seat. You know, we just keep an eye on the line and all right, here we go. We're yeah, going to start Because what the happens then now. is that you then slurp, 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 you know, because by the time you, especially right. at Opera Theater St. Louis, it's like by the time I come out at intermission, you got to get in line. Oh, they have the get, sippy cups it, now. I know, yeah. I know. But before it was like, you know, you get your drink just in time and it's like ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, like, you got to chug it like you're in college, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, no, I know. So I we missed that second half. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do I get a refund? <laughs> but of course, we're small, agile, or we are, and we program our music accordingly. Like we don't program two hours of actual music and then have to cram it in. You right. know, like we we there's space to breathe in our program. So, in other words, there's room to go to the bathroom. Plenty. We will. We actually wait. <laughs> On our audience. Unlike so, us here. Right. Yeah, right, you right. just got to go. So, um, you know, that and and just, you know, uh, some of it's in the marketing too, like the way we phrase it and stuff. But it, once you start to get some newbies in there, they bring their friends, they love it. The storytelling, the, the thematic programming, I think really invites people in because it's interesting to people who already know a lot about classical music because they're seeing it in a different way. Right. We're always programming... Um, we're not a new music ensemble, not like Alarm Will Sound, right? right? So we play Beethoven and Mozart and Brahms right. and all the traditional, um, we call them affectionately the dead white guys. You know? <laughs> we, we, we call we, them that too. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. We, we play all those guys, of course. Um, but about half of our programming is by living composers, many of whom, if not most, depending on the programming of the year, are like very under the, the underrepresented, right? Mm-hmm. So women mm-hmm. and people of color and, mm-hmm. you know, under underrepresented ethnic carriages, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, we really focus on that programming and people love that. They love the stories of that. They love, especially people, you'd be surprised, the people who are new to classical music, they um, are a lot more open to contemporary music than the the people who know about classical music. So that's been very eye-opening to us. And um, we're also, through the theme, like it gives you a story and a context for each piece of music to listen to. Like it, it just gives you a little more information and then you can... Even if you've never heard of the composer, you've never heard music like this before, it gives you something to hold on to, right? It unifies things together. And it unifies things. And for people who know a lot about classical music, it gives them like a new perspective. Like, oh, I didn't know that or listen to this new music. And over the years... Our, our steadfast audience members of whom we have many, like they just, I don't know any of these composers on the program, but I know you're going to do, I know I'm going to like them yeah. because you of the way you select the music. Like we're really careful about it. So Ellie, about what she said in diversity, each concert features music of locally connected composers. There's usually three world premieres. 
And the diversity, five of six of the programs this year include music by African-American composers, six Mm -hmm. pieces total, three by African-American women. One of them is local, one's from Kansas City, one Iranian-American, one Sri Lankan who grew up in Dubai, lives in Canada, seven pieces by women, all but one are contemporary, still living. Each concert features at least one piece by a local regional composer. Three mm-hmm. of the local composers are doing specially commissioned pieces. So, and then the stats, I love the stats down here about <laughs> eight of 22 dead white guys, three of 22 <laughs> dead people of color, 11 of 22 living yeah, composers. Yeah, I got really into my stats. I have them already here. It, it was, so. it was, I thought that was hilarious. Uh, yeah. Dead no, people but, of color, dead white guys of color. Right, I know, you can no go color. a little bananas. Um, I'm like, how do I categorize this person? Well, this person was living when we played their piece, but now they're dead. So how do I categorize that person? No, it, but, but it makes sense about really, really... <laughs> You know, opening and expanding horizons yeah. and providing a venue for composers who are not getting out there. Their break. You know, and look, I love classical music. I'm a classical musician. I love it. But classical music, especially the bigger, not all of them, but there is an issue in the industry of programming the same music again and again and again and again. And we all know that white men, especially in classical music, have a leg up in the industry, right? And th- not to diminish their work. Right. But, you know, we we have a platform and we're going to use it. Right. And our audience, they love it. We love it. And it, it's working really, really well. Like we to put that back to back and to say, look, we can relate Beethoven to Florence Price, who grew up, you know, an African-American right. woman who, who grew up in Arkansas in, the, you know, the mid-century, right? right. Like, we, there is a connection there, right? And that's the great thing about classical music is you have this incredible history of hundreds of years. And if you start to think about it, it connects all the way up to what's happening today. Absolutely. You know, and that's how we get young people and that's how we keep the art form vibrant. That's cool. I I like, too, that you have these themes because it helps me to have a better understanding of the mood of the music that I'm going to hear. When you listen to classical and if you just if you're just reading the title of it, you know, and it's like a toot, a toot, a toot. Right. (laughs) And you kind of look at that and go. I don't think I'm feeling a toot today. Or it's got a bunch of numbers, you know. It's number five, opus six, yeah. set number three. Yeah, in F-sharp minor. Yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. And you know, and you're like, what like, does that mean? Like, I'm feeling just like that today. Right, right. <laughs> you know? But if I am feeling and if I'm studying, like I said right now, reading on resilience yeah. and the human mind, yeah. you know, that immediately is like, oh. Oh, that caught my attention right there. Yeah, Which good. is why you see, you know, other groups playing like John Williams, or we're going to do the Star Wars, or we're going to play, you know, the the Wizard of Oz, or right. to really kind of cut, sh- sand those edges down. Right. Right. And right. allow people to come in. Because yeah. like when you're talking about beauty, and we think of music in terms of beauty. Especially classical music. Yes, yes. Especially classical music. But redefining the ideal, I think that is a that is an excellent phrase because it's 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 basically saying that this is what has been established. This ideal has been established. Right. But, but it doesn't mean that. that's right. That that is <laughs> yeah. the end all, that that is the only way that it could be. Yeah. And I like that. Yeah. So that's one that would be of interest to me because it's, I want to see how are they going to redefine this? Yeah. And that actually, I, I can't think of point. her name off the top of my head. So we're doing that at the, that concert is in November 22nd and it's at the Contemporary Art Museum. And the 
the artist who's going to be in that space is opening this weekend. So the reception, the opening reception is tonight and there's an artist talk tomorrow at 11. And we, that theme sort of relates to what that installation is going to be. So if you really want the full experience, go to cam this weekend (laughs) and then come to our concert in November because that installation will be all around us as we play that concert. And she's questioning identity and beauty and like she's that's part of that exhibit is interpret interpreting beauty and who gets to decide sort of who gets to decide what's beautiful and why and i think that's a big question right now um in culture Mm -hmm. in um fashion Mm -hmm. you know what what used to be that ideal model right is no longer that ideal model exactly what we're questioning right now with this because we've got brahms who's the beautiful, you know, master composer Brahms. But then on the first half, we've got two living composers. One is from St. Louis. And so we're really, you know, just juxtaposing like there's still, I mean, look at these other things that are beautiful, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. let's not just get stuck on Brahms, mm-hmm. right? There exactly. is more <laughs> that's beautiful than this one very narrow definition of what's considered beautiful in classical music. Well, it makes you think about your programming as it relates to what pieces and what composers you want to put together yeah. or what you want to, who you want to juxtapose. Uh, right. You know, yeah. On, uh, and, and, I, and, the, and the message that you really want to leave, I think, is the key because it's just like with any art form. You know, we absorb it while we're sitting or while we're observing, but there's a greater impact once we're leaving. You know, when you think about when you go somewhere with a friend and you've been to this exhibit and maybe you've had to be quiet and then you're leaving to go to your car or mm-hmm. to the next whatever you're going to do and you have that discussion. Yeah. And that's where real intimacy occurs because now yeah. it's like, well, I felt this way and it's that shared experience. That's right, that shared yeah. experience. But then all of a sudden it's like, "Oh, Dana, I didn't see that." Yeah. But you did. Yeah. And now we share that I heard that, yeah. but you didn't. Right. You know, and so I think that that is a real key is the takeaway. Yeah. What happens or, in the I conversation? Love that. I hated it. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that because well, that's interesting. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And the dynamics of a live performance versus listening to something on oh, your headset. Oh, it's all about live. You know, live yeah. is, man, it, you're talking about when musicians are in the zone and they're all together, it's like, holy smokes, this is like a very powerful yeah. moment. It can really evoke emotion and... Yeah. Right, right. I think we were talking about this last week. We were talking about Slatkin. Um, the yes, right. With uh, Carmina Burana down at the symphony, my wife <laughs> saw yeah. that, and he he said they were all in the zone. He just stepped off the podium and let them go, and just let them go. Yeah, but I've been to the symphony where, to me, it was the conductor that was the center stage, yeah. not because he did anything that was he wasn't trying to garner the attention, but he was so into it, right, that. You know, it was like every moment, every movement, I was right there, riveted to that person. Yeah, that's cool. So talk about the, the, because in chamber music, you, there is no conductor. You are, you are all kind of really, you're, you're keying off one another. You're looking, Mm -hmm. you're, you're watching body movement, you're watching eyes. Talk a little bit about that process, because that's a different process. It's a very different process. And actually for Saturday night's concert, we will have a conductor for one of the pieces, um, 
because sometimes you just you need one. You need one. Yeah, so um, one, two, three, hit it doesn't work. Yeah, no, <laughs> not for Kristen Custer's piece. That does not work. So um, actually, the piece that inspired this whole program is a piece um, by Kristen Custer, which she was inspired by um, Tadeo Ando, who is an architect, and. Um, she talks about light and refraction. And so we kind of came up with this window thing and went from there, built the program out around that, but we need a conductor for that piece, but it's, it's really cool. We just had a kind of a limited amount of rehearsal and we just needed to get, get, instead of figuring out. So what we do when we don't have a conductor is, and you know, if you're playing Beethoven or Haydn or something like that, every, the beat is really steady Mm -hmm. and it doesn't change very much. And so rhythmically it's pretty straightforward. And so to stay together, there's just a little visual. You're really listening, but you're using your vision quite a bit. Even if you don't think we're looking at each other, we are right. right? Like we're using our peripheral vision. And if you watch really carefully, you'll see us moving and cueing each other and giving each other the eye, you know, Mm -hmm. and something like that. And something that's more complex, like David's piece or um, Kristen's piece, we have to make a lot of decisions about who's leading what. Right. And, um, in Kristen's piece, especially that would have taken hours just to decide because it just is, would be constantly switching around. It wouldn't just be like the violin's in charge the whole time. Like right. it just wouldn't work that way. So, um, and there's a lot of tempo changes. So it speeds up, it slows down, it speeds up, it wild tempo changes, which is fun as a listener. Cause you're like, Oh, I didn't see that coming. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, and it, it's a very, oh, that very makes sense piece. then to have the, uh, yeah, conductor. yeah. We have Elka Overton's going to conduct us. Um, and it, it's really an exciting piece. It's going to be, a lot of fun. Very cool. So, well, well, oh, wait, I got, I have got a question. This is one of those, you know, crazy Ellie questions. Okay, okay. crazy Ellie. So, okay, on the back here, <laughs> season passes, six concerts for a hundred dollars. Yes, but when I go to the front, I count seven. seven well, concerts. the Confluence concert, the the concert at the History Museum, right? They're sponsoring that, so it's free. <gasps> I know. Whoa. And not only had we already come up with this idea that confluence would be our theme of the season, like relating to the rivers and the joining of ideas. And we want it to be the season to be really focused on local composer, like act, like a local composer in every concert, which we always do local composers, but mm-hmm. not on every single concert. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and they happen to be having a Mississippi river exhibit at oh, the same time. Cool. And so we've, this will be our third or fourth year doing a partnership with them, tying into their exhibits. And, um, so that one's free. That's why. And we wow. also have a free event coming up. Um, it might not have gotten out in the information you have here, to, uh, cause it just happened on October 3rd. We've, we're launching a new partnership with the St. Louis County libraries and we're going to do two right. free events this year. And so our first one is on October 3rd and that's called a very open rehearsal. So the audience, it's not just a passive listening experience. It's that we invite the audience to ask us questions during the rehearsal. So I'll be moderating. So you won't have, you can interrupt me, not the musicians. But if you're like, why is the violin doing this? What's, what are you doing here? Like, why does the music sound like this? We've had at these very open rehearsals where we can't decide how fast to go. We can't choose the tempo. We play it two ways for the audience and they vote. We like it faster. We like it slower. You're like, can you come to every rehearsal and help us? (laughs) 
<laughs> I would say where children would really get it's a cool. Lot from yeah, this. it's a really cool thing. It's free and it's we're it's an actual working rehearsal. We will be preparing a music by Florence Price for the October 11th Resilient program. But you're like the moderator, so they're not like, hey, you know, I got a question while you're in the middle of the piece, right? So I'll kind of be in, in between. I'm not playing on that piece. It's string quartet. And so I'm, you know, kind of will be facilitating. She right? gets to be the one that tells the, the little kid. Uh, Not now. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking more like sit down and shut up. <laughs> Quit popping your gum. Yeah. <laughs> That's hey, not hey. music. No, no, no. We, it's very, you know, and as musicians like talk about failing, we are trained from the get go that perf- when you play in front of another human, you need to be perfect. Right. That the performance level should be high. So here we are rehearsing for the first time something we've not played together in front of people it goes against every instinct we have unlike and, the jazz musicians well, they're, who, they they love to get together and they just kind of fill riff. it in right off of each other right but you all are but saying they're that trained to do that. to do that See, we aren't trained to do that we're trained the opposite way right our training is all practice 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 then perform and so here we're letting you in at the beginning and the first couple of these we did we were all just terrified i mean like shaking we were so scared because we messed up. We had to stop. We failed horribly. We couldn't get through the piece, you know, but then, so we run it at the beginning failures and everything and we work on it. And then at the end we run it for the audience again. So the audience can hear the difference, right? Like this is what, this is the work musicians are doing in rehearsal. So that's pretty cool. So that's that cool. Um, at the Thornhill branch, which is in Creve Corps, I think from seven to eight on October 3rd. Very cool. And that also lets budding musicians know that it does take a lot of work, a lot of collaboration in order to make the sound that you come and hear at the performance sound like what it sounds like. It's not just talent here. It's like (laughs) hard work. (laughs) Hard work and talent. That's right. Exactly. So we've been talking to Executive Director of Chamber Project St. Louis, Dana Hodel. Dana, thanks for coming in thanks today, for and don't forget me. their pro, uh, their program tomorrow through the Looking Glass window at the Five Sixty Music Center. It's seven thirty p.m., and you can get that information more at chamberprojectstl.org. Chamberprojectstl.org. So thanks for coming in. Thank you. You have been Thank so you. inspirational. You. Yes, very yeah. nice, very nice. Thank you. <laughs>